Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and today I have a very basic question. Why are the prices so damn high? Why are some things getting more expensive, even as technological innovation are making the goods we use much less expensive? Our smartphones every year get better and cheaper. Our cars better and cheaper. But why are things like education and healthcare getting so much more expensive year after year. Today, I have a special guest with me, George Mason University economist Alex Tabarrok, the Bartley J. Madden Chair of Economics, who is also one half of the most interesting economics blog in the world, Marginal Revolution. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's great to be here. Now, you and Eric Helland just released a new short book. Uh, You can actually download it free online. We'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, titled, Why Are the Prices So Damn High? Okay, so let's start real basic. What prices are high and which ones aren't? Right. So this was sort of motivated by kind of a famous uh, chart, uh, Mark Perry and other people. You can find it on Twitter, which shows that you know, since the 1950s, there's been tremendous decreases in the prices of things like uh, home appliances. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, very first microwave around 1950, uh, it cost over $10,000 and you literally needed plumbing uh, in order to make it work. Uh, you know, now you can buy a great micro- microwave for, you know, 75 bucks. Yep. Uh, and in general, home appliances have fallen by a factor of more than four. Um, clothing and shoes are way down. Tele- telecommunications uh, services are way down. Uh, I think we're all familiar with that. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, however, you see tremendous increases in prices for things like uh, higher education, lower education, and of course, uh, healthcare. You know, higher education has gone up by a, a more than a factor of four. Uh, since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, healthcare, of course, is up. Professional services are up as well. So the question motivating um, our, our short book or booklet was why Why the difference? Why are some of these prices going up? Because that, at least when you first look at it, that seems anomalous. That seems mm-hmm, weird, mm-hmm. right? I mean, capitalism should be driving prices down, you know, falling prices, increasing productivity, you know, technological advances. That's the norm. That's, that is what we sort of expect. Uh, so it seems, at least on first glance, that there must be something wrong with these sectors. Mm. And, and so we try and look at that question. Yeah, there's a kind of intuitive logic too. well, if we do things better, we make better widgets, we make, uh, you know, everything gets better, our smartphones get better over time, our cars get better over time. Why doesn't why don't we see that across all sectors, that kind of level of improvement? Um, and that makes intuitive sense. But what I found really compelling uh, about the explanation in your book uh, for this discrepancy, um, you point to something called the Baumol effect. I think I'm pronouncing that right, the Baumol right. effect. What is that and, and where does it come from? Right. So William Baumol is an economist. Uh, uh, he should have won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he, got, he got a little bit too old and died before he could win. <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> um, but he was definitely a uh, – he was a contender. OK. <laughs> um, and that's where the name comes from. So the Baumol effect is 
there's a kind of a famous example. It may not actually may not actually be the best example, but kind of famous example, and I'll I'll just step through it uh, briefly. And that is the string quartet example. Mm. So you take a string quartet in 1826. Uh, it takes four people 40 minutes to run through, you know, a Beethoven string quartet. Mm. Uh, 2019, it still takes four people 40 minutes to run through the same string quartet. <laughs> so in, you know, over 200 years or almost 200 years, there's been zero increase in productivity, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in string quartet performances. And yet at the same time, of course, we know that in other areas of the economy, there's been huge increases in productivity. Now, the key is to think of what that means for wages. So you go back to 1826 and the average wage is like a dollar an hour because people just aren't that productive at producing things. You come to 2019 and the average wage is about $25 an hour. Mm -hmm. So what this means is that in 1826, to pull those four workers away from other areas of the economy, you have to pay them $4 in total, dollar each. Uh, in 2019, to pull those same four workers from the other areas of the economy, you've got to pay them $100. Mm-hmm. So the wages of these four workers and the cost of producing the string quartet has gone up by a factor of 25 productivity hasn't gone up at all, therefore prices must rise. So we see this kind of shift um, from fields, from domains um, that are good producing intensive they make stuff um and they've become more efficient in their production processes they can make the stuff cheaper and we're seeing the shift those gains are then moving to labor intensive sectors uh or services in in intensive sectors um which i guess is like stuff is becoming cheaper while people and labor is becoming more expensive, which, which seems great from a humanitarian perspective. I mean, this seems people first, in, in a sense. Yeah, I, I mean, so we have had a situation where uh, manufacturing in particular has gotten much, much more productive. Um, and because it's, in part because it's become more productive, there are fewer people. We need fewer people in manufacturing mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. than uh, uh, we used to. And people have moved to services and services for a variety of reasons, not all services, by the way, but services for a variety of reasons, um, productivity growth has been slower. And that's actually one reason why the economy has become uh, more slowly growing over time because we've shifted away from the fast productivity increasing industries towards slower productivity increasing industries. At one point in the in the book, you, you note that like one of the other terms, so we can call it the Baumol effect, uh, but it's often also called the Baumol cost disease, which carries a negative connotation. Like no one ever says, oh, a disease is good, right? It's, right. It's yes. Disease, eesh. But you make the argument that cost disease is misnamed, that is, quote, not a disease, but a blessing. What do, what do you mean for that? Flesh that out for us. Right. So what this means is that anytime we have differential 
productivity increases. That is, one industry is increasing at a faster productivity rate than another industry. We're going to have changes in relative prices. So, and this is kind of a deep, a simple but a deep point is that, this is a simple but kind of a deep point, it's that in a capitalist economy, all prices are relative prices. So in a capitalist economy, what happens when the reason why, for example, education has become more expensive, what that means is that we must now give up more other goods in order to get an increase in education. So why do we have to give up more of other goods? Well, simply because we've become more productive at producing other goods, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so that's why the opportunity cost, the opportunity cost of more education is we have to give up other goods. And because we've become more productive at producing other goods, we have to give up more of them in order to get a little bit more education. Mm. But that's not a bad thing. Uh, the fact that we're becoming more productive you know, at producing cars uh, is a good thing. So another way of thinking about this is kind of when we're thinking that uh, everything should become cheaper over time, mm-hmm. we're thinking that things should become more affordable over time. Mm. And that can be true even as prices go up because since all prices are relative prices, we cannot have, it is impossible to have all prices falling. All real prices cannot fall mm. because prices represent opportunity costs and all opportunity costs cannot fall uh, for the reasons you just stated. If you're becoming better at producing one thing, then the price of doing the other thing has got to go up. Mm. And since prices represent opportunity costs and all opportunity costs cannot fall, we cannot have all prices falling. What we can have and in fact what we primarily see is that things are becoming more affordable. And this actually is a reason why, even as the price of you know, education has gone up and as the price of healthcare has gone up, we've actually bought more of these things. Hmm. So, and that, yeah, yeah. That, that's, I mean, it's, it's contrary to what, I mean, so much of the conversation about education, healthcare is there is an affordability crisis, to use the the, the the word you just used. Um, there's an affordability crisis that's getting too expensive. Um, it's uh, it's a pro that itself is a problem. It's a it's a cost disease. And so what you're saying is you're we're thinking of that the wrong way. Um, that what's going on here with the Baumol effect is that other more productive fields are freeing up are in a sense freeing up resources that can be spent on these lower productivity fields. So, so maybe how about walk us through a specific uh, domain. So h- how about education? So flip our understanding on the head from this, you know, every, every newspaper you open trumpets headlines about the affordability crisis, the student loan debt you know, crisis, et cetera. Help us, you know, flip that, that conversation on its head with the Baumol effect. Right. Sure. So I think the, um, the case for education is a very good one for the Baumol effect because think about a teacher in 1950. Mm-hmm. Teacher in 1950 standing before a classroom, uh, basically talking, lecturing, uh, using chalk. You know, instead today the same teacher would be standing in front of the classroom using a PowerPoint. Mm. Um, <clears throat> not that big an improvement in productivity. Some <laughs> would say a decline in productivity. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but we're not seeing like teachers 
teaching, you know, uh, uh, more people in, in a faster amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the productivity of education has not gone up uh, really at all. Um, of course, the productivity of many other things have gone up. So in order to get a teacher into the classroom, and teachers are pretty highly educated themselves, they're relatively skilled workers, the price of skilled workers in particular has gone way up. So if you want to pull a teacher into a classroom, you've got to pull them away from a industry which has increased in productivity. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing them into education where there's been no increase in productivity or not much increase in productivity. Um, And so, of course, the price of education has gone up. Now, at the same time, we're richer precisely because we can afford all of these other goods. Manufactured goods have become so cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, We can now afford actually to have more teachers. And in fact, that's what we have. We have since the 1950s more than doubled the number of teachers per student. Um, and that's a good thing, uh, or it may be a good thing, uh, but it's a reflection of the fact that we are actually richer. So we were buying more of these goods as, um, even as the price goes up Hmm. and, and there's an interesting, uh, aspect of this is that in the book, we look at a lot of the other kind of popular explanations for why prices have gone up. Things like, you know, administrative bloat. We have too many principals, too many administrators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things like, uh, oh, it's the teachers' unions. Um, and, you, you know, like just very briefly on teachers' unions, they probably ra- raise wages in education relative to other fields a little bit. But like the best evidence is like 5%. Okay? Mm. Not a huge effect by uh, any means. So we go through a number of these other explanations and find them wanting. But there's another puzzle. And that is this. If any of these other explanations are true, that is, if education is becoming more expensive because of inefficiency or bloat or regulation, if any of those explanations are true, the only rational thing to do is to consume less education, Mm. right? If the cost, if the real cost is actually going up, that is the, if you actually have to invest more resources Uh, because of inefficiency, you should consume less. Mm. The Bommel effect, in contrast, is completely consistent with consuming more even as the price goes up because the Bommel effect happens when we get richer. So students aren't responding. They're not. They wouldn't be responding rationally to uh, rising real costs of college education, uh, if because we know two things. First of all, college education is getting more expensive. Um, we also know that it's it's as desirable. It, it's it's gotten more desirable over the last forty years. The the percentage of people who go to college and graduate from college keeps going up. So you actually have more demand, not less. Which I. But that wouldn't be explained by the standard, I, I suppose, right and left wing um, explanations for that. And I, I've used them before, like the the administrative bloat, uh, the the way in which like uh, uni- uh, government gar- guaranteed loans and grants uh, uh, lead to tuition inflation. I've used all those standard ex- explanations, um, but I get that point you're making, which is 
look, that that wouldn't explain if that was all true. If the universities were building useless, lazy rivers, entertainment facilities, which which they are, but if that was the cause of this, um, of this, you know, increasingly expensive college education. Um, you would expect people to respond by, "Well, I'm g- I don't want, I don't want or need as much of that." Right. right. Exa- exactly. Okay. okay. And and I think this is one of the. And I agree with you completely um, because all of these other alternative explanations, they're very intuitive and they're very plausible because all of these things are true. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> right. Is, uh, you know, uh, I teach at a university and we have, you know, two Olympic sized swimming pools. Nice. You know. Do you have a lazy river yet though, Alex? <laughs> uh, we do not have a lazy, we do not have a lazy river. I don't, I don't think That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or climbing walls, but it's a pretty nice place yeah, to work. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, it is true, that, you know, probably there are too many administrators, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But first of all, all of these things were true 50 years ago as well. Mm. Um, and people were complaining about them as well, you know, p- complaining about, you know, people in the ivory tower, eggheads in the ivory tower and coddled students who, you know, are, you know, having a free ride. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Th- these complaints go back as long as, you know, education uh, does. So as I say in the book, if you think it's lazy rivers, you know, the rivers have to be getting longer and lazier every single year, you know, Mm -hmm, in order to explain this very long-term steady increase in prices. Mm. Um, This appears to be something which goes back, I mean, in our data, we take it back to 1950, but uh, actually, you know, for at least 100 years, uh, prices have been rising steadily year after year, and it doesn't seem to change very much um, what particular policies uh, we have, um, which is not to say we couldn't do better. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's not the explanation for this very long-term rise in prices over time. So there are a couple of responses that I think are baked into society, the economy, to Baumol costs. Uh, cost effect is something gets more expensive relative to, you know, things being produced by a high productivity sector. Um, People naturally are going to look for substitutes, um, often technology-based substitutes. uh, And those those substitute technologies move from high productivity, low productivity sectors. I, I suppose an example would be like with our string quartet, Listening to live string quartet music is getting more expensive relative to to you know a century ago. Well, what's a substitute that's maybe it's not the same. It's mm-hmm. not exactly the same, but I guess like it's recorded music, CDs, Absolutely. Spotify. Flesh that out a little bit more for us. What's how, what role do substitutes play, and what how how far does that go, and what don't substitute? I mean, so walk us through the substitute question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we can find a technological substitute um, for one of these goods, which has become more expensive, that's great. And, you know, recorded music, um, absolutely, that's, you know, um, uh, uh, superb. As you pointed out, it's not quite a sub, it's not a perfect substitute because people are still willing to pay um, to hear live music. So it can't be a perfect substitute, mm-hmm. but it is, it is good. Um, and yeah, we see this, you know, we mentioned home appliances. Um, you know, it used to be the case that uh, people, uh, fairly uh, wealthy people, would have domestic servants. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's just not true any longer. Uh, they can't afford them, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, and and uh, we, and one reason is they can't afford them, but the other reason is because the substitutes, the dishwasher, uh, you know, the washing machine, uh, have become very good substitutes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and so we hope for that. Um, it, in, in some sectors of the economy, right, we just haven't found good enough substitutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of online education. Um, I do quite a bit of it myself at Marginal Revolution University. You know, get a plug in there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and I, I'd like to see more of it. But for whatever reason, you know, universities have been around for over a thousand years. You know, Oxford is like a thousand years ago. And they basically followed the same model, mm-hmm. which is the professor standing in front of the classroom and lecturing. And that hasn't changed very much in a thousand years. So there's something very powerful there. I don't – it's hard to put my finger on exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have said, well, books. Books are a substitute. You know, now you can carry the book. You don't have to go listen to the professor. You can carry the book with you and, you know, you can read it wherever you want. And uh, uh, it's much cheaper than having a professor. So once we have the invention of books, we won't need uh, professors lecturing anymore. (laughs) That, of course, turned out to be false. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. People thought the same thing about television and that turned out to be false. Mm. So uh, radio, there was a big um, effort when radio was invented to broadcast uh, lessons, mm. uh, you know, uh, broadcast these lessons throughout the world. And again, that didn't, that failed as well. So there are some goods where um, for a variety of difficult to, you know, articulate reasons, uh, it's just hard to substitute away from that labor component. Mm. And I think uh, education is one and healthcare is, is another. One of the things that's really interesting about this too, like speaking of education, healthcare, um, so a, a very common conversation in tech innovation circles is to where this understanding of the Baumol effect is, is not robust is to think that, okay, um, for tech folks, will look at these sectors, look at education, look at healthcare and, and they see the rising costs and they see that, well, that must mean a market opportunity for us. Like this is, this must be a field that is ripe for innovation and then they propose a variety of changes that typically fail or underperform. I mean, like these sectors have been the graveyard of many an entrepreneur who made their first fortune in Silicon Valley doing, you know, uh, tech and manufacturing, productive efficiency type gains. And then they try to – but is that a mistake because they're thinking about those fields and the ball model effect in the wrong way? Yeah, I think uh, possibly. Um, so – they may be thinking about it in terms of there's some inefficiency there and here's a way to, to you know, eliminate that efficiency. And I think that's probably incorrect. Um, however, I, I'm very supportive of the idea that really the only thing which in the long run is going to reduce prices in these industries is if we can find a way of uh, making skilled labor more productive – or substituting for skilled labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think artificial intelligence and robots are really the best uh, hope uh, we have because they're the closest substitute that we have for um, skilled labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if, we, if, there's a way, uh, if there's a way forward, 
um, that is the way to do it, to have some productivity uh, improvements in these sectors. And, and artificial intelligence and robots are probably the closest thing that we have so far. Um, and you give examples in the book, you know, um, using machine learning to replace radiologists or to at least supplement. You, know, you wouldn't need as many radiologists if you have the AI screening, you know, scans of your, people's lungs for, for lung cancer, that, right. that kind of thing. Right. Right. And we have done this in several fields. Um, you know, a field which comes up often is uh, laser eye uh, surgery, mm. uh, where, uh, you know, prices have come down and, and, and people – um, often point to this. Indeed, I think I started uh, this meme many years ago on Marginal Revolution. <laughs> um, and I said, look, you know, laser eye surgery, um, it's typically not insured. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why, you know, uh, it's not subsidized. And that's why prices have come down. It's more market. It's more sold in a market. Yep. I've used it too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which I think is true. Um, but thinking about it in the context of the Bommel effect, I think what is also the case is that a huge portion of laser eye surgery is the machine, mm. is the laser, right? Mm. And actually the doctor sees you for like five minutes, right? And mm -hmm. the laser goes and it measures your eye and zap, 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 and, you know, the slice and dice and uh, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it happens very, very quickly and most of the work – which has gone into reducing the price, has been making the lasers better and more hmm. accurate and so forth. And so that's a case uh, where um, there's been a big machine component um, to the price. And that's the part, I think, which has fallen in price over time. Alex, how dare you undermine my preconceived libertarian explanations? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, this is horrible. No, um, well, mine, mine too. Mine yeah, too. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and it makes sense then that so fields, medical fields that uh, are more diagnostic, di diagnosticians, it, that hasn't been mechanized to nearly to the same degree. Now, it might happen in the future here with machine learning and, and AI, but uh, that's that's more labor intensive, right, rather than rather than machine based. So that, that makes sense. I mean, it, it, I find that quite convincing. Now, there's something else I wanted to ask you on this line. So if if this all happens, if we... If there are, are ways using artificial intelligence and the like to replace skilled, uh, you know, professors, uh, education professionals, uh, doctors, um, my my concern or my interest here, uh, we we interviewed uh, an economic historian named Carl Frey about his book, The Technology Trap, recently. And he, you know, he basically was applying the observations from the first industrial revolution to the coming wave of automation. Uh, replacing white collar jobs in the future. Um, but in there, he talks about the risk of essentially a second angles, as in Marx and Engels, a second angles pause that um, as white collar skilled workers are replaced, it leads to much more unrest, backlash, pushback, Ludditism than when working class, you know, workers, factory workers are replaced. That the replacement of blue collar labor versus white collar labor. So my question here is this. I mean, do you see a similar issue that it, as these sectors that have had relatively low productivity growth over the last, you know, uh, generation or so, um, as they now are going to be exposed potentially to labor replacing innovation, 
do you expect that to be a cause of of pushback, a cause of backlash against productivity reforms in those sectors? So yes and no. Um, Let me start with a no. Uh, At the present point in time, I don't see evidence uh, for this. And I see most of the uh, you know, social backlash as coming from low growth, uh, not from high growth, mm-hmm. right? So if, if the robots really were taking over, we would see massive improvements in productivity and great increases in, in output. And that is not what we're seeing. I mean, to use my uh, colleague's phrase, we're in the great stagnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, productivity growth is actually uh, down. Um, and I think more uh, social unrest comes from low growth than comes from high growth. Because uh, when you have high growth, there's always enough to go around, right? And people are less concerned with uh, distributing the pie when the pie is growing already. Mm-hmm. It's, it's when the pie is fixed in size or even shrinking that people become uh, much more concerned about dividing the pie. And it's when you divide the pie that you have social conflict because if someone is getting more, somebody else must be getting less if the pie isn't growing. Um, mm. So at the present point in time, I don't see uh, the danger of the robots uh, here in the United States. Now, elsewhere in the world, I do think that there are um, significant problems. If you take a country like India, for example, uh, India, just because of population growth, it needs a million new workers, uh, a million new jobs uh, every month. Hmm. Um, and because manufacturing has become uh, uh, more automated and is, has become cheaper and uh, is not growing, uh, we need less of it. Uh, the route which countries in the past, like uh, Japan and then Korea and then China, the route which those countries took to become developed, more developed countries, you know, working through manufacturing and exports, that is becoming less available to the developing countries today. And so that, I think, could be, um, could be a problem. So the robots I don't see as a problem for us, but they are a problem for India. Let's put it that way. Innovation always comes with, uh, even if it has medium or long-term benefits, which I you know, generally believe I'm pro-growth, we're pro-innovation here. It does come with, on the short term, and uh, social and economic disruption, right? There are people who lose in the short term, even if on the net as a society we gain in, you know, in the, in the long term. So it come, and people don't like disruption in general. I, I, there's a, you know, we, we like stability in the status quo. It's, it's comfortable often. Um, but do you believe that we have, like, does this generation have an ethical obligation to future generations to pursue growth in labor productivity, even if it comes to the net cost to ourselves in terms of this, that, that disruption? And how does the ball mall effect play into that kind of future ethical obligation? Yeah, so my colleague, uh, Tyler Cowan, uh, has a book, which I highly uh, recommend, uh, Stubborn Attachments. And yeah, he makes the argument that um, future people ought to count in our calculus, in our benefit cost calculations, uh, much more than the political process allows for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's just no reason to discount future lives uh, compared to uh, lives today. And so this, yes, does put a lot of weight then on saying, 
uh, innovation, it's even better than we thought because it'll benefit most of us, but it'll really benefit, <laughs> you know, uh, future people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, our children and our, our, our grandchildren. So, yeah, I, I take that argument uh, very seriously. At Building Tomorrow, we're a tech-focused podcast, and we are pro-innovation and pro-growth. As I was thinking through the implications of the conversation with, with Alex that we just had, I started to wonder if understanding the Baumol effect was key really to properly appreciating how much technological innovation has done to improve all our lives. We mentioned this during the interview that it's easy for us to appreciate just how much better our lives are when our stuff gets cheaper. Better phones, cheaper phones, better cars, cheaper cars. But the problem is that's getting weighed against the downsides of innovation. All that social and economic disruption and a nicer phone compared to I can't afford health care doesn't feel like a fair trade-off for a lot of Americans. It's easy to see where the anti-tech backlash is coming from. But what's less intuitive but just as important is that we need to realize that the wealth created by gains in productive efficiency are spilling over to benefit people who don't work in tech and in ways that don't just involve new gadgets. Like the upside is not just a nicer, better, cheaper smartphone. The upside is also that doctors are making more money, teachers are making more money, social workers, violinists, you name it. Through no effort on their own, people who aren't in tech are being better compensated because we as a society have embraced technological innovation despite the disruptions. And I think if we properly appreciate that fact, there would be less kind of anti-tech backlash in American society today. So we can thank the Baumol effect for making all of our lives better, not just giving us nicer stuff and neater gadgets and toys. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.